Ah, oh, you can't beat a bit of umpar techno music. Hello and welcome to this revival edition of Pod HD. My name's Guy Kiddy and I'm in snowy Bavaria. I know it's been a while since the last episode, but I'm back, so loosen your lederhosen, set your stein on your beer bark, and settle down to a broadcast of Beards and Jesus. I'm starting off with Mark Anderson, who's researching how and why men got hairy between the mid-50s and the mid-70s. What was it that inspired the move from close crops and smooth cheeks to longer locks and bristly chins? We might think about an increase in um, fascist fashion consciousness in the same way that we think about increased levels of home ownership, of DIY, of, of the importance of car ownership. So it's a, it's a way of expressing yourself to the world and people um, maybe pay more attention. We also have to be careful that we don't assume that people who had more conservative style in earlier periods weren't conscious of the, of the image they were presenting. The man who sports a, a beard and a certain hairstyle tends to fall under the banner of what I call hipster hipster culture and hipster style. To what degree, when this change started to happen, were higher styles and, and beard styles really individual? It's an interesting issue to tease out, really, because so many of these styles, as they start off, are associated with sort of youth subcultures. So it, it sort of starts off as, as a uniform to indicate group membership, but also group difference from, from the map. And, and where, where we seem to get a change into a more uh, general fashion is in the sort of late 1960s, I would I would say from about sort of 19, uh, 1968, 1969 and accelerating through the early 70s. I spent some time looking at old yearbooks of Nottingham University. So obviously students, uh, particularly at that point, weren't necessarily typical of the population at large. But you can definitely see a change in sort of um, in fashion and outlook around you can it's pretty much 1967 1968. Whereas if you look in the mid 60s, there's a lot of sort of short conservative hair, and also conservative dress sort of uh, suits smart dress for for women in the in the photos. Now, I would say some of that is just a demographic shift that teenagers who are sort of to a degree not necessarily following but developing their fashions from what they wore during the early 60s when teen fashions were maybe more adventurous than fashion at large but there is also something uh, a sort of a social interest in the 1960s and 1970s in youth and the importance of appearing young and that's a definite difference you can see during that period whereas in the 1950s and a lot of sort of hairdressing literature there are um, hints and tips on how to make young men look older, how you could even um, brush some sort of grey colouring into, into young men's hair to make them look more senior and to help sort of professional advancement. Would you draw a possible link between the rise of consumerism and pin-ups, poster boys, poster girls, and, and these sort of model characters in culture and society demonstrating a look that then the masses want to want to replicate. There's a slight debate. Uh, historians that write on the on the 1960s and 1970s in Britain over whether sort of the, the emphasis on youth is sort of overdrawn and whether actually um, we should focus more on sort of what people who weren't involved in youth culture uh, were doing, which is definitely a, a, valid, a valid point. The style icons definitely get younger, uh, during that period, and they also sort of change change shape quite dramatically. I mean, if you look at somebody like a like a movie star from the 1940s or 50s, like a, a Cary Grant or somebody like that, or or a David Niven, 
And then you look at Mick Jagger, it's a completely different sort of... Uh, the, the silhouette is completely different. It, it's not only... I mean, in one thing, it's a lot hairier, but it's also a completely different sort of build. So tell me about other demographics, because you've you talked about youth culture, you talked about noticing this sudden change in the yearbooks at Nottingham University in the late 60s where suddenly more or less everyone has the long hair and the scruffy shaggy look because another thing that I came across in your notes was that even the Daily Express and the Daily Mail seem to condone this transition to hair long hair and 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 bearded bearded chins yeah so so the role of the press is a really is a really interesting one particularly where I look at the press is in sort of um the coverage and discussion of sort of um, debates or disagreements over hair. So I look, I look particularly at schools where um, there's a number of, of sort of incidents, both small and, and larger, uh, at schools throughout the throughout the country during the 1960s over the issue of uh, school rules over hair length for boys. So um, boys being sent home in many cases because their hair was deemed too too long and told that they couldn't return to the school until they had it cut. Or in some cases, some other form of punishment where where their hair was cut um, by teachers or where they were sort of made to usually a, a, a punishment um, meant to indicate effeminacy. So they were made to wear, wear skirts or made to wear ribbons in their hair. But there's also sort of editorials in the in the in the Daily Mail um, in the late 1960s, where it's a slightly different issue, where where men are being barred from nightclubs because of their if you for having long hair. So there's a door policy that if you have long hair, you're not allowed to come in. And the Daily Mail runs an editorial where they say, oh well, this is this is outrageous. This is a liberal. You can't you can't uh, sort of profile somebody based on based on their dress. Tell me a little bit more about uh, salon culture. I don't mean Parisian salon culture, but hair salon culture. Um, you, you say that in the 50s already there were very upmarket hairdressers for men who did a little bit of clandestine colouring, for example. Some were more in favour of that than others. But then in the 70s, there was more of a rise in the idea of at least the unisex hairdresser and perhaps also the, the male hairdresser. So, so when did you see this shift from a barber doing short back and sides to a hairdresser really spending a lot of time on the on the male coiffure. I think, yeah, that's that's another thing I've been slightly surprised at through my research in the um, when I when I've looked at hairdressing literature from it's really around the mid 1950s where austerity starts to ease after after the period of sort of, of very strict uh, restrictions after the Second World War. And uh, businesses start to able to sort of invest in refitting of salons. Um, and from the mid 1950s, you start to get these sort of more upmarket uh, male salons, which had always existed in certain urban centres, but they start to s- sort of spread out towards the it's, away away from sort of London and metropolitan culture into sort of uh, big urban towns and cities. Tis the season of Jesus, so what better time to have some commentary from Tim Murray on Jesus's thoughts regarding money and generosity, and how early Christians responded. I, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Jesus and the New Testament generally, but he, he says a lot of outrageous things um, and a lot of outrageous things about money in particular. You know, like sell all your possessions and give to the poor or um, give to everyone who asks of you. And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, that didn't only cause some serious headaches for the people who were with him at the time, but for every generation of uh, Christians or those who have tried to engage with his teaching ever since, really. It's quite an interesting question, both historically and theologically, to sort of say, well, if we look at the first Christians and the first churches, um, 
when didn't they do this and why? Um, you know, when did they restrict their generosity? When did they not give to people who were asking of them? Given that these are the same people that preserved these radical teachings, it, it's sort of interesting to see how they then thrashed that out in practice. And did in in in, in the testament did Jesus say absolutely nothing about mitigating this 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 great exhortation for for early Christians to be generous? Did he not take account of the fact that if you give away everything and receive nothing, then you become the one who's in need? <laughs> he was a teacher of a particular style, you know. There is um, he, he often said takes things to an extreme to make a particular point um, so most of his advice wasn't most of his teaching um, kind of needed needed a bit of work in terms of its application and, and sometimes he was willing to do some of that work for you but other times he just left people with a problem and uh, and they had to work it out so I mean a lot of Jesus teach about money is really predicated on two principles and the first one is that um, the principle that in the end provision of everything food money clothing etc comes from god and so uh, these sort of commands to be free with your possessions were predicated on the on the principle that uh, those who um those who are obedient to god will be provided for by him so that's what makes you free to do that in, in that way you know they, that's what's meant to free you from the cares and concerns of well how am i going to do x y z and, and his other principle was about relative need really so he never talks about a, an objective amount of money that's either too much or too little it's always comparative to someone else so uh, you have too much money if someone else needs it and you're not going to part with yours so so the early early christians try to stick by this word and and typically I, I suppose they were family groups at least people who knew each other very well and i presume from the documents that exist the suppositions of of subsequent historians of the testament they were relatively successful in in being generous in following these edicts that you've just mentioned i think um you you'd always want to be careful about to what degree you can talk generically about success or failure in terms of these things you know there's lots of different christian communities and they would each have uh you know they would each looked a little bit different and had different challenges um i think the sort of the testimony of history is that overall there was something notable about the way the early christians used their money uh, there's a famous um writing we have a letter of the emperor julian in the uh, later on, you know, in the in the fourth century, he talks about the fact that um, whilst the, 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 the no Jew ever has to beg, and the Christians were not only looking after their own poor but the poor of the city as well, and you know he was trying to move the Roman Empire empire away from Christianity. So obviously, at some point, the Christians made an impact in this regard. But um, my my research really looked at when they were struggling to come to terms with. Um, their own practice and, and problems were arising they were trying to practice some serious generosity but were were hitting problems and um and we've got a few texts that are uh, a little window into those situations because the authors are trying to address some of the problems coming up and you see something of their ethical reasoning um so so what were those examples what precipitated this 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 challenge the unbridled generosity of of those early christian groups the key framework for understanding all of this is that the early christians saw themselves as a, as a family and um, jesus started it he redefined family he said you know no longer are my mothers and brothers those that are blood relations but those that do the will of god 
are my brothers and sisters and mothers and this sort of thing. So he, he, he started redefining family around himself, and that was picked up in the early church. And uh, back in the first century, really, um, those who would look, you'd look to for financial support in hard times and for sharing of resources was the family. The problem was when you got some people that wanted the support of the family but weren't prepared to do their bit. Um, so in the two letters to the Thessalonian church, Thessalonica is a city in Asia Minor, um, you have a problem where some people are basically free riding. So they want the support, they want the feed, um, and the church seems to be giving it to them, but they're not actually doing any work that contributes financially themselves. So that's one problem that arose. Sounds like an, it's like an early demonstration of the problem of the collective, isn't it? If you ever have an expression of generosity, you've always got the risk of free riders, haven't you? There's two letters to the Thessalonians, and the first one is quite gentle, encouraging people to work with their own hands and to contribute to the family and this sort of thing. That doesn't appear to have done the trick, because then we have a second letter to the Thessalonians where a much stronger line is taken. And we get the strap line, if you don't work, you won't eat. <laughs> Obviously, things have got serious. And uh, and in the end, those that weren't prepared to contribute were, were barred from receiving them. And on the ethical basis that because they hadn't played their part, they weren't true Christians. They hadn't demonstrated their Christian faith, the required degree, and therefore they weren't entitled to be part of the, the Christian family. Absolutely. And, and this sort of ethic ethical approach would have been really familiar to anybody in the first century christian or not this was part of the um the way that families worked it, it, even in roman law you know uh, you were obligated to support your household financially if they needed it unless you could prove that that particular person hadn't lived up to their family duty and and who was kind of regulating this society do yeah. we have an early sort of priest figure uh, who is the person overseeing these these family groups and saying, okay, well that you know that's we're going in the right direction if we live and think like this. We're not if we go in this direction. Yeah, it's an interesting question that the sort of sources of authority for these early communities, and um, you'd have to say that there are a couple that we can be clear about, and a few things that we're not clear about. Um, so what we can be clear about is that a lot of these communities were started by individuals who essentially would arrive in a city spend some time there um, spreading the Christian message and forming a community. So often these sort of founding figures would have a degree of authority. Um, certainly in some communities we've got, you know, people knew how to organise themselves. Most people would have been part of other clubs and other associations. And um, so they were used to kind of electing officials and this sort of thing. So we have some evidence of that as well, that uh, some authority was given through a more democratic process, if you like. One of the most surprising things about the early Christians was the authority of texts. You know, that that is not so normal. Um, obviously, the Jews, a lot of the early Christians were Jews, and, and the Jews already um, had authoritative texts. Um, but this was also adapted by the sort of non-Jewish Christians, say, whether that is collections of the teaching of Jesus, whether that is letters by um, key figures in early Christianity and of course most importantly the, um, what we now have as the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures themselves were seen as authoritative in those communities. So it's a mix really between the authority of texts, uh, founding individuals and then some authority among the sort of local people as well. In this 
quincentenary year of, of Luther, uh, yeah. who was the guy who said, okay, let's get back to the text, essentially. Um, at what point did early Christians devi- deviate uh, from the text, the words of the text, um, and move more in direction in, of, of, in the direction of the interpretation or someone else's, an authoritarian interpretation? Of, of the text. You know, Luther and the Reformers' emphasis on the return to the text was very much a reaction against um, not the idea of a church tradition itself, but um, but what they saw as the claims of the church tradition that went beyond what they should have done. So I think it's, uh, it's probably a little bit um, irresponsible to say that, you know, the church through the centuries moved away in a sort of final way from the authority of the text but uh, cer- certainly the sort of balance of power had shifted and I think you could probably trace the origins of that back to uh, the whole um, the event of Christendom really and the, and the coming of the church into the sphere of political power and the bishops becoming uh, serious players in the political sphere Well, that's it for the December edition. I'll be back in 2018 with more featured speakers from Pub HD events both in the UK and abroad. Merry Christmas, everyone, and have a good one. <laughs>